The Funambulist, Design and Racism, Christina Hazerton. So we're going to have a third presentation now by Christina Hazerton. So Christina, uh, Christina is an assistant professor in uh, Trinity College in uh, Connecticut in American Studies. Uh, she just very recently uh, launched uh, a new book uh, that she co-edited with uh, Jordan Camp called Policing the Planet and uh, Adverso. Uh, and uh, it looks uh, absolutely amazing. Uh, she also co-edited a, a book called Freedom Now, Struggles for Human Rights to Housing in Los Angeles and Beyond. Um, as well as edited by herself, Downtown Blues, a Skid Row reading. And she's currently working on a new book because uh, she seems to enjoy <laughs> it, <laughs> uh, which, uh, which title will be uh, The Color Line and the Class Struggle, Mexican Revolution, Inter Internationalism, hard to say, and the American Century. And, uh, and so I think the, uh, right now she will present us part of this uh, very particular aspect of, uh, of structural racism, which has to do with uh, uh, relationship to uh, uh, policing. Do, do you know what else is hard to say? Funambulist. Uh, yeah, <laughs> well, I was going to say hesitant <laughs> for okay. French. How, how's everybody doing tonight? Is everybody standing who's standing okay? There are a few chairs over here, so if people want... Chair. No, there are chairs up here. People want chairs. I realize I'm like rounding home over here. People have been really patient and surprisingly sober above a bar. Um, so, uh, Leopold, thank you so much for bringing me on this panel. This has been uh, totally fascinating. I've just been in the corner writing everything down because, as Minha said about VHSs in the 90s, I'm Japanese and therefore biologically prone to piracy. Is that what yes. you said? Yes. <laughs> so fantastic. Um, so, uh, as Leopold said, I am here because I uh, just co-edited this book, which is coming out at the end of the month. It's called Policing the Planet, Why the Policing Crisis Led to Black Lives Matter. We have interviews and articles and poetry by, uh, I'm like giving you a pitch. I'm, like, book's not out yet. I'm not good at doing the pitch yet. But um, uh, organizers like Patrice Cullors from Black Lives Matter, essays from people like Ruthie uh, Wilson-Gilmore, Robin Kelly, Vijay Prashad, Naomi Murkawa. Um, and, uh, you know, we're just trying to extend the debate around policing so that we think about it more than just beyond the kind of intimate violence of police brutality, but we think about what does the policing crisis mean in an era of mass incarceration, an era of mass deportation, an era of militarism, of counterinsurgency? What do we think about it in a context of the regulation of uh, non-normative bodies? Um, Etc. Cetera, Etc. Cetera. So anyway, I have a few copies if anybody's interested uh, in getting a copy afterwards. But um, there's an interview in the book that I do with the Red Nation, which is an indigenous-led council out of Albuquerque, New Mexico. I'm uh, hopefully a lot of you know that New Mexico is one of the states with the highest rates of police killings, and Native people are actually the group uh, which the highest rate of deaths by police and. Uh, the Red Nation is a group that's been organizing against it, and one of the co-founders is somebody named Nick Estes, who's, um, I'm pointing to the table of contents like it's there. He uh, writes a fantastic article in the new issue. So, um, so that's our connection. That's why I'm here. I'm not an architect. I'm not a planner. I'm just a poser. And I have um, written comments because it's late, 
uh, because it's hot, because I don't have any alcohol in me, and I just want to keep this tight. So if I sit here, can everybody see in here? All right. So what I want to do today is talk a little bit about policing. Leopold said we're doing this panel about policing, no, racism and design. And um, I uh, wanted to offer some thoughts uh, about a new piece that I'm putting together, which thinks about policing as urban design. Um, and uh, so I just want to say a few words about policing first. Policing, obviously, the presiding model of policing has altered the world that we live in. It's changed the way that we move through and inhabit cities. It has cultivated atmospheres of fear and until very recently chilled political energy. It has soaked up resources in place of social programs so that in many cities, and I, I, I know many of you can attend, uh, attest to this in New York City, in many cities the police effectively function as mental health facilitators, school disciplinarians, public housing managers, and guards against park trespassing. In some municipalities, as the recent Department of Justice report on Ferguson demonstrated, the police also aggressively function as surrogate tax collectors. Um, and, and as activists have begun to enumerate the number of police killings, it's worth reviewing the spaces in which different high-profile killings have occurred. So, of course, you all remember here in New York, uh, Kai Gurley died at the hands of police patrolling public housing units. So did Freddie Gray. Um, a 12-year-old Tamir Rice died at the hands of police patrolling a public park. And, of course, Eric Garner was killed on a public sidewalk for the sale of untaxed commodities. Uh, so beyond their spectacular violence, these incidents enable us to see how police not only regulate spaces, but how they also produce and delimit particular spatialities of the public. That's my big $3 words. I'll try to limit them. I know it's almost 9 o'clock. Um, but this production is critical to both the physical construction and also the legitimation of the neoliberal project, both domestically and globally. So I'm going to offer some thoughts about racism and design and specifically notes, as I said, towards a theory of policing as urban design. And to begin, I just want to ask some questions, or we have to ask some questions. How have these developments come to pass? How do we make sense of the social and spatial functioning of police? How have the police become the arbiters of behavior in space? What conditions have enabled them in unfettered access to the bodies of poor people in general and poor people of color routinely? And how have these relations altered space, redirected resources, and shifted the conditions of political possibility? Um, and how do we begin to understand the connections between the war abroad and the war at home, linked spaces that are never as discreet as we imagine them to be? So I'm trying to keep this to 10 minutes. We might not get to the war, home, and abroad, but I'll be happy to talk about it during Q&A if you want. So um, as I said, a total fraud, no planning, no architecture. How many architects in the room? How many teachers? How many undercover cops? Uh huh. Okay. So, thanks for being honest. Uh, so I'm not a geographer, but have been trained by a lot of geographers. And a wise geographer once told me that until you can look at the skyline of a city, especially a city like Los Angeles, and understand its totalities, from the flows of finance capital housed within its office towers to the migration flows of workers who clean the buildings at night, to the shadows of the prisons and jails which lie over them, and all the movement in between, you don't really understand a city or how it's planned. Uh, and so, you know, I try to think in a way to make such global processes visible. And I'm going to speak a little bit specifically today about downtown Los Angeles, the center of finance capital in Los Angeles, which neighbors a rapidly gentrifying and also rapidly organizing community of Skid Row. Skid Row is one of the poorest communities in the United States, the nation's capital of homelessness. 
um, and contains the densest concentration of poverty in the country. Skid Row has also become one of the most intensely policed communities in the U.S. Um, and as uh, I, uh, I keep forecasting things I'm not going to be able to talk about, but um, if we have time, I'll talk a little bit about how this kind of uh, constellation of poverty policing um, has actually enabled this area to be a launching pad for major post-9-11 counterterrorism initiatives. So just to whet your appetite, but we might not quite get there. Okay. Uh, but to jump these scales and understand the broader continuity between domestic policing, the redevelopment of cities, and even the war on terror, uh, I want to reassess the policing ph philosophy known as the broken windows theory. How many of you here have heard of broken windows theory? Educated room, especially you, undercover cop. Okay. Uh, so praised as a comprehensive model of community policing, this doctrine has uh, vastly broadened the capacities of police both nationally and globally. So what I want to do is consider how broken windows policing as both philosophy and practice emerged alongside, but also facilitated, major transformations of the neoliberal political economy by thinking within and across scales, uh, scales from the regulation of bodies and behavior to the refashioning of spaces for global capital, or, or, I'll argue that broken windows policing links racism, capital accumulation, design, and the increasingly commonplace vulnerability to state violence most experienced, most keenly experienced by poor and working class communities of color. Uh, so this is all part of a broader project I'm working on called um, Predictive Policing in the Age of Speculative Capital. Um, so for those of you who didn't raise their hand when I asked about broken windows policing, here's a short e explanation. Uh, broken windows policing, it's uh, more of a, a metaphor than a philosophy. And the concept, the underlying concept is pretty simple. To stop major crimes from occurring, police must first prevent small signs of disorder from proliferating, such as, shout them out, like what? Broken Well, bro <laughs> don't be so literal, Leopold. <laughs> Graffiti. Littering, weed, weed <laughs> trespassing, um, public urination, panhandling, etc., etc. It proposes that the best way to prevent major crimes is for people to take responsibility for their neighborhoods, a good thing, but for the police to facilitate that process. And here's what's so effective about the metaphor that was originally written in a 1982 Atlantic article by George Kelling and James Q. Wilson. The, the metaphor is that if a window in a neighborhood stays broken, it signals neglect and encourages small crimes which lead to larger ones. So it's this metaphor of an abandoned house. Somebody breaks the window, nobody fixes it. Next thing you know, people are squatting inside. Next thing you know, people are shooting up. Next thing you know, they're arsonists and robbers and murderers, and then the you know, apocalypse happens because nobody fixed the broken window. Um, so disorder in the form of minor violations is presumed to breed larger disorder. It's a very powerful metaphor. That's why it's lasted as long as it has. Uh, instead of addressing individual crimes, instead of just being responsive, broken windows policing has given police new authorization to control and moderate individual behavior and has therefore constituted a fundamental expansion and redefinition of policing capacities, as I argue in the book, domestically and also worldwide. Uh, the uprisings in Ferguson uh, and the subsequent Department of Justice report have brought renewed attention to the specific issue of broken windows policing. In 2013, how many of you read the Department of Justice report? I'm just doing crowdsourcing. Of course you did. You're just going to raise your hand all night. Okay. Uh, so read this. Actually, I have a bunch of students tonight cursing me out because I made them read the whole thing and they're writing a paper. And if I were to turn on my email, they'd be like, 
fuck you, Professor Heatherton. Uh, so, but if you read the Department of Justice report, uh, you would see the following. In 2013, the city of Ferguson, Missouri, issued the highest number of warrants in the state relative to the size of its municipality. Uh, Ferguson's home to just over 21,000 people, 21,000 people. It issued over 24,000 warrants. As the New York Times summarized, this amounted to an average of three warrants per Ferguson household. This disproportionality, as you might have heard, resulted from vigilant policing around crimes of poverty, more often traffic violations, like driving with a suspended license. St. Louis, right? You know all about this. Uh, driving with a suspended license, expired registration, proof of insurance. Uh, when drivers could not pay their traffic tickets and subsequently failed to show up for court dates, municipal courts transformed these unpaid tickets into warrants. And the rising issuance of these warrants directly correlated to their increasing significance in city coffers. By which I mean, since 2011, the city revenue from just traffic fines alone increased uh, dramatically. It constituted 20% of the city's $12 million budget. That's just for traffic violations. Warrants from other crimes of poverty, what are called quality of life violations that result from broken windows policing. Um, uh, crimes like fair hopping on public transportation, playing loud music, trespassing, wearing saggy pants, or even more mundanely, jaywalking. Can you believe it, New Yorkers? Jaywalking. You know, these also constitute crimes uh, that uh, poor communities are under a special uh, surveillance for. And jaywalking was once suggested as the plausible pretext for Michael Brown's fatal encounter with Darren Wilson, the uh, Ferguson Police Department. Um, what was interesting to me about Ferguson is that the situation there is replicated throughout the country, particularly in the poorest regions, which are disproportionately black. Um, and, uh, you know, the particular area that I was doing, uh, involved with a lot of organizers with, was in Skid Row, Los Angeles. Uh, and the, the situation has a lot of chilling parallels. In September 2006, the mayor's office and the Los Angeles Police Department introduced a measure called the Safer Cities Initiative to secure the area with increased policing. Not coincidentally, your fair police commissioner, William Bratton, was police chief of Los Angeles uh, during this um, new um, initiative, Safer Cities Initiative. So, um, uh, what happened? So when I was in Los Angeles, um, during this period of Safer Cities Initiative, uh, there were just cops flooded into this area. According to a UCLA sco a School of Law report, Skid Row was saturated with the highest concentration of policing anywhere in the world outside of Baghdad. And nobody was saying anything about it. So in the first three years of the Safer Cities Initiative, the LAPD gave out 40,000 citations, made close to 30,000 arrests. 40,000 citations, close to 30,000 arrests, in a place home to fewer than 15,000 people. Uh, this was 50 times more often than the rest of the city. Um, and as in Ferguson, citations were given for minor infractions like blocking the sidewalk, jaywalking. Um, and, you know, so just an example of how it worked. If you're, if you're given a ticket for, jack, for jaywalking, for jaywalking New Yorkers, jaywalking, $159. This is over half of what most people in Skid Row, this area, the highest concentration poverty uh, in the country, make on, on general assistance. So obviously people can't pay these tickets. Um, and just like in Ferguson, if you're unable to pay the fine, it lapses into a warrant. 
uh, and then into an arrest. Uh, and, and I should just mention, as a side note, um, which I'll hopefully come back to later, recently the uh, Los Angeles issued its budget. It's devoting $100 million to homelessness. $87 million of it is going to policing. Uh, so for the specious crime of an unpaid traffic ticket or the more mundane offense of not being able to cross the street in time, people in both Skid Row and Ferguson endure an ever-present vulnerability. They become, in essence, walking warrants, whether or not they even have warrants, um, because the likelihood that everybody, you know, anybody that you could pick up, you especially, you know, is most likely going to have something that they can be arrested for. Um, and what was really stunning in some of the early projects I did interviewing Skid Row residents, people talked about how they had to draw straws just if, you know, someone needed cigarettes or they needed to get a can of Coke or something like that because the likelihood of you getting arrested was so great that even leaving your home, you know, was this big ordeal, not unfamiliar to other war zones across the world. Uh, so backed by statistical inevitability, emboldened by the dictates of the regional political economy, police in these areas can reasonably treat any person they choose as, as an arrestable subject. I think I explained this all. Um, so impoverished residents in both these areas exist in states of what I'm calling imminent violability, as the police are endowed with the arbitrary capacities to govern their existence. So this is not unique. I'm not trying to make an, uh, an argument about, you know, uh, Skid Row as being an example that doesn't happen every, anywhere else, from Skid Row to Ferguson to London to Mexico City to Chile, Brazil, El Salvador, and beyond. It's why the book's called Policing the Planet. Broken Windows Policing has become the social regulating mechanism of neoliberalism at the urban scale. And accordingly, the emergence of this particular style of policing must be understood within the context of shifting configurations of capital accumulation. If arrest is the art, the political art, of individualizing disorder, as Ellen Feldman suggests, then Broken Windows performs the art of individualizing capital's abandonment and also its punitive reinvestment. Uh, through the metaphor of Broken Windows, state, state retrenchment is naturalized as a spatial relation. I might feel like I'm reneging on that promise not to give you any more $3 words, but here you go. Um, so amid destructive recycle, uh, cycles of deindustrialization, disinvestment, redevelopment, broken windows policing is presented as a legitimate and commonsensical uh, practice of restoring order, or more mundanely, cleaning up trash. As deindustrialized cities have become veritable landscapes of broken windows, policymakers, city planners, and police departments alike have utilized this logic to depict racialized poverty as a disease endemic to itself. Racialized poverty, therefore, appears to have no origins. It's reducible to its effects and regulated accordingly, a mystification that's as incredulous as it is uh, callous. Uh, so as disorder is located within individuals, legitimated through racialization, um, the transformations of the neoliberal political economy is diverted and individuated within the body of the blamed. That was, that was a mouthful of world, but do, you, but do you guys understand the transference, right? Big, in these cities you have a massive reshaping of real estate as a new site of financial investment. Cities change, the way we inhabit them changes, you know, what sectors of economic growth change. And those changes get individuated into individuals that do not fit with that schema, that interrupt that schema. Um, uh, yeah, so broken windows do not represent signals of individualized disorder, but rather capital's production of landscapes of assault and abandonment uh, populated by increasingly vulnerable period of uh, people. 
Um, so maybe I'll just say a few more things. I feel like I'm going way over time. Um, so, you know, the cleavages of the neoliberal city are built upon already existing and heavily entrenched race and class divisions. Cities didn't all of a sudden become segregated and racist under neoliberalism, as your presentation shows. You know, there's a long history to racism and design in American cities. But while these cleavages have intensified, I think conversations like this are really important because our capacity to understand these transformations has profoundly lagged. Alongside physical displacements and disinvestments, there's also been a correlative analytical displacement where meaning is offloaded into space. So as the late geographer Clyde Woods noted, spatial euphemisms like ghetto, like sketchy, even broken windows, these terms carry enormously racist meaning without the indelicacy of racist language. Segregation, which was previously codified in law, uh, you know, uh, uh, as the legal scholar Johnny Powell argues, now persists without legislation because these practices are largely inscribed in geography. Speaking about places when we are actually speaking about people has enabled deep segregation in our purportedly post-racial era. But broken windows not only regulates behavior in space, it also transforms the very space of its regulation. The short-term speculative and ever-shifting relations that characterize circulations of neoliberal capital are predicated on volatility. In this environment, as Kevin Floyd notes, broad social volatility becomes a central source of profit. Uh, it's decisively these accumulation schemes of volatility which produce states of imminent violability. That's what I'm trying to argue in the bigger piece. Um, the flexible accumulation of the neoliberal political economy, here's my argument, it requires a method of regulation that can reconfigure space at the pace of capital's needs. Broken windows policing is that mobile practice. It's a portable logic capable of reconfiguring space in the name of regulating disorder. And, and the way that that regulation happens can change in any place and time. It builds on and expands on uh, already existing exclusions. It intensifies them. In an era of mass incarcerations, these mechanisms transform people into the walking warrants of the neoliberal city. The prison fix, as geographer Ruth Wilson Gilmore describes, requires such untethered people. I could say more about Bratton, about the war on terror, about counters. You can see, I'm like all jazzed up. I'm going to stop here because I'm really curious about how you enter into these discussions, and I'd love to have a dialogue with my other panelists, but that's what I'm working on. Thank you very much.